Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Amos, did you have a good holiday? I, I did. We went back to the town where we just moved from and stayed with my in-laws. It's a little weird, though, because before everybody would come stay at their house, except for us, because we had our own house. And we might stay there one night over Christmas and play play games with the adults, like board games, after everybody all the kids went to bed, but you know, the kids would get tired of being there and we'd just up, drive back across town. Well, this time it, we couldn't do that. So we were there for an entire week and, uh, it's very, it's just very different. It wasn't horrible or anything like that, but some days you could tell like the kids needed a break from everybody else and, but there's no place to go. So it's like, uh, go run around. I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> they get holiday fatigue. Yeah. I mean, holidays are a lot. We don't do our presents till this Sunday either. So we do it on Epiphany. So the 12 days of Christmas, we do it on the last day. Kind of like that idea. More holidays, more like, more just giving people gifts. I love giving gifts. Like I actually, like I actually love giving presents. I don't need to get anything. It's fine. I enjoy finding gifts for people. I do. I'm just terrible at it. <laughs> the art of finding the perfect gift for someone is really fun. Finding them the gift that they didn't ask for, but... But you know that they want it. And the even like higher tier than, than that is finding the gift that they've never even heard of. But as soon as they see it, they're like, I love this. I, I need, need this that so much. <laughs> How did I live without this? Right. Exactly. I love doing that. I'm just really bad at it. Twice it, I've gotten my wife Christmas presents that she looked at me like, what? One year I got her a French press for coffee because like, we drink a lot of different coffees and we have like every maker except for a French press. And I thought she'd probably really love this. And I got it for her and she goes, do you know why we don't already have one of those? Is I think French press coffee tastes watered down and gross. It's <laughs> <was> like, oh. <laughs> Aww. Well, you tried. I was in Tahoe for most of it, which was nice. I hung with my folks a little bit, and then they left. And I had some downtime, but I was sick, so it was okay. I'm feeling much better now. But I got to do some skiing, and there was some... Some friends came up at varying points, so... So is your family from Tahoe, or did you just... No, my parents have a little place in Tahoe, and so they hung out, and they left Christmas Day. And then I was up there the rest of the week. I've only been skiing once in my life, and the major thing that I learned is that I'm not good at it. I don't believe you. I feel like if you did it more than once. Here's my excuse, because I like to think that I'm a fairly coordinated person. I grew up like surfing and skateboarding. I blame it on the fact that I also grew up water skiing, and from what I can tell, everything about snow skiing is the inverse of water skiing. Oh, really? It's all 100% backwards. Oh, okay. The way you turn is different. The way you position all of your like body weight is different. Like in water skiing, you lean back. Everything about you wants to lean back. And like you put weight on like the other feet and you lean a lot. You never just turn your ankles or your knees. <laughs> like you you get body weight going the whole time. And I'm sure when you're good at snow skiing, you can do all those things. But I could not. So I spent most of the time falling down. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty normal, I think, for a person. <laughs> you were too confident. Yeah, right. I was like, this will be easy. <laughs> this is like riding a bike. <laughs> Only it's a bike that's upside down. That's fair. That's totally fair. So I was not good. I'm very jealous of all the people who are good at it because it looks really fun. Like when you're good at it. It is fun. But I mean, like I would probably feel the same way about water skiing. I've never done that. I'm sure if I got on water skis, I'd be like, I don't understand what's happening. My limited worldview means that I feel like water skiing is like so much more intuitive because you just kind of lean and you go where you want to go. <laughs> But that's how I feel about skiing, but I also started skiing when I was three, right? Oh, so. see, there you go. 
and I grew up on on lakes, so I'm closer to Chris. I've never been skiing. It was not written in my family's cards to be able to to fly out to a mountain somewhere and go skiing. Yeah, it's also insanely expensive these days. Well, there's no more snow anymore. You know, I mean, like we're running out of snow. <laughs> you have to, you have to go further north every year. Yeah, exactly, right? So get it in while you can cuz it'll be gone and then Well, I mean, that's that's really the saving grace for me when I think about my Florida family is soon they won't be there cuz it won't be a Florida anymore. Chris. <laughs> I mean, we've got a we've got a twenty year run, and then Florida's gone. So I mean, oh, you know, yeah. luckily, I mean the same thing probably for the coast for San Francisco, right? Like I don't know, maybe don't not know twenty years. But... I know like the Pacific Northwest is supposed to be the one place that's gonna like be able to sort of sustain. Oh really? Yeah, apparently this is based on the research. Uh, it just is the right climate. It's like the right elevation with the right climate. Interesting. Well, that's good to know. I mean, we're all screwed. You should be fine. You only got to go a few miles north and you're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just retreat into the mountains. Be good. That's hilarious. So anything, what's, what elixir related things anybody want to talk about today? I had a bunch of ideas and they're, they're all gone now that you asked. Uh, I'm trying to think of what I've been working on lately. <laughs> I know. Anything fun? It's been the holidays, so like, I don't know. It has been, but I was the only one working, like most of the people for my client left. Today's my last day with my client, so I've been trying to work a lot on, we have a a shell that is for the end users, and there there was a lot of stuff that was set and process set, or process put and process get, so like process global variables, which make debugging really, really difficult. So I've been trying to do a lot of things there with uh, using closures uh, instead of instead of that and passing functions around and also passing data in instead of having it set as some global. So that's that's been my week, two weeks, and documentation, documenting every function before I leave so that people know what's going on. That like last week, I mean really anywhere, but definitely on a uh, as a consultant, that like last week when everything is like winding down is a real funny week because it's mostly spent, yeah, writing docs, not doing a whole lot. <laughs> Like, you know, trying to do a bunch of like things that you just wanted to do the whole time, but couldn't justify because of billable hours. (laughs) Knowledge transfer. That's been kind of the beautiful thing about the Christmas vacation, though. Everybody from the client went on vacation and I was still working. So I I got a few weeks of trying to improve the things that I've wanted to do the entire time. I'll probably have one more pull request that's just documentation. But the one I put in this morning, I ripped out 300 and something lines of code and replaced them with 100. And that included documentation that wasn't in the 300 I deleted. So, Are you working on anything interesting, Chris, that you can talk about? Honestly... Right now, I've been out so long now. I don't, I mean, I haven't made a meaningful contribution to work in like two months, like legitimately. So I'm kind of getting back into the swing of things. I don't actually have anything super interesting on my plate right now. Lots and lots of Kafka stuff. Right now, we're investigating a bunch of different Elixir drivers for Kafka stuff that are backed by, um, there's a kind of a universal like rap, uh, library now written in C. Um, that's becoming the sort of standard Kafka like library, I guess. Manages a bunch of thread pools. It does a bunch of really smart batching. Like it's a really, really well done library. It's written by one of the Confluent people who are the maintainers of Kafka. So it comes with a good pedigree and like it's going to be well supported. And basically all of the client libraries that exist today are all starting to go away in favor of libraries that are backed by this. Um, it's called RD Kafka, Lib RD, RD Kafka. And 
all the client libraries are out there are just less good than this one. Right now we're trying to find uh, a, a reasonable library in Erlang or Elixir that utilizes that. And there's one that's out there called like Erlcoff or something like that. The Elixir drivers that are out there are either hand rolled and I don't trust them. Not the least of which because it has X in the name. And I just instinctively don't trust libraries that have X anywhere in the name. <laughs> I had some concerns, so we just we didn't go with that. Um, and then the other really good one that's been out there before is uh, one that's written in Erlang. And so there's a couple like Elixir ver libraries that wrap that thing. But the fact is, is like development on that stuff will always be behind RD Kafka. Like basically all this is language independent. Like every language that isn't Java or Go is all switching over to RD Kafka. So we're trying to find a library, and it may be that I need to just write a bunch of NIFs and do it myself. And the NIFs are easy because it you don't have to worry about like preemption, which is typically the the actual complexity of writing NIFs. Basically meaning like if your NIF takes too long, this is a well-known problem, but if your NIF takes too long to execute, then you can like ruin the schedulers. Like you can throw off all the schedulers. And so uh, in this case, we don't have to worry about that because RD Kafka uses its own thread pooling. So we just like, it's like you send it messages and it sends you messages back eventually and it just, it, it all works out. So... Uh, it should be fairly straightforward to write NIFs for it. So I'm thinking about dusting off my C to do that if the library that we're looking at right now doesn't doesn't have everything we need. How thick is that pile of dust on your C? How long is it? <laughs> it's, it's thick. It's inches thick. Like, I mean, it's been a hot minute since I've written C in anger. I don't know. We'll see. I'm, I mean, I guess I could theoretically do it with Rust if I needed to. Have you been writing a lot of Rust? I've been writing a lot of Rust. I don't like Rust. I'll just say that as a as a thing but I, I have been writing a lot of it just because I think it's a useful it's a useful language it, Rust doesn't speak to me in like a emotionally satisfying way <laughs> that other languages do um, it's a really good language and it's a well thought out language it's just it's just a better C like you if the choices that you're making in your life are I'm going to write C or I'm going to write Rust you should choose to write Rust across the board. There's no reason to not do that. It's a strictly better upgrade. I think my problem with it is like, I actually don't think you typically need to do that. I think for, for most people, they don't really need to be writing C. And because of that, they don't really need to be writing Rust because Rust doesn't elevate you mentally out of having to worry about memory. It's, it's effectively like it catches all of the memory problems that you would have had in C. It, it, it doesn't allow you to have the memory problems that you would have had in C or, you know, forgetting, you know, use after free or forgetting to, you know, for, forgetting to check inputs and all this kind of stuff. Like it, it doesn't allow you to make those mistakes, which is really cool. And like that type algebra that allows you to do that is really interesting and really cool. So, you know, caveat with like Rust is a really interesting language and a really cool language. That's great. My take on it is you just don't want to care about any of that. Like most people don't want to care about that and shouldn't care about that. And the time that you spend caring about it is a waste of time for a bunch of use cases. And I don't understand the appeal personally for a lot of the use cases that people want to use Rust for. It just kind of makes, it's just weird to me because it hasn't fixed the problem with C that you have to keep it all in your head. Like if you want to be a productive Rust programmer, you have to keep all of those rules in your head still. It doesn't elevate you out of having to care about all that. It just keeps you from making mistakes, which is interesting, but also it doesn't, I don't think it shifts the paradigm of programming at all. I don't think it changes the way you think about solving problems. 
And that to me is what I'm looking for in languages. Like that's, that's how like a language like speaks to me emotionally is does this change the way I think about solving the problem? And I don't feel like for me, Rust does that. Rust is just writing a safer version of C and it, ha- it hasn't changed the way I think about writing programs. What do you, what do you think Rust is, is it would be its niche? Would it like if you're working with hardware and small amounts of memory and is, is that what it is? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, like if you need to write C and there, I'm not saying there aren't reasons to write C or write C++, you know, like there are definitely reasons to do both of those things. And if you're going to do both those things, then you should probably just write Rust. There's really no reason to not just write Rust. I have like foibles with the decisions they've made. It's definitely a language that is being designed by committee, like 100%. And it feels that way. A lot of the decisions that are in there feel totally arbitrary in, in terms of what is in its very small standard lib versus what's in crates versus what's in wherever. Like that feels super arbitrary. The async await and all the like async stuff generally is still not baked yet. So I wouldn't be super ready to, to pull the trigger on all that and like using that kind of stuff unless you're just really into it and want to, you know want to ride that roller coaster which is you know that's fine i've done that with other languages i did that with elixir like long a long time ago so i mean if you're into it then go for it but from a practical standpoint it doesn't have enough wins for me for me personally to just like use it as a general purpose thing but i think as a scalpel like if you need a scalpel it's a really good scalpel and there's a there's a bunch of interesting crates there's a bunch of interesting stuff i don't know i it feels weird to me i i'm not um i'm not uh, educated enough about rust to really talk about this um but it does it strikes me that it's got a real weird mixed set of ideologies in terms of where it want what it wants to be like it's like a systems language that also wants to be a general purpose language that also wants to be super accessible. And that's a really admirable goal. I'm not involved, so we'll see what we'll see what they do with it. I mean, maybe it'll be great and it probably will be great. I mean, given that it's trajectory so far and people really love it, the people who do it love it a lot. So, you know, that's that bodes well for them. And obviously they know more than I do. I'm just some like outsider. But it, it is weird to me that they're sort of marketing it as a systems language for that is also like useful for building web apps and building like general purpose things. That's a very interesting thing to me because I feel like the the natural course is going to end up in a place where it tries to do all the things and then you get like the Scala problem where it's got every language contract like construct that's ever been created inside of it and now it's kind of just a jumbled mess. But I don't know. I mean, it probably is going to be good. So, it's probably we'll fine. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like I'm I'm not I'm not informed enough to really talk about it. I don't I don't like it as a I don't know. I mean, I don't find any joy. It's a, it's a writing Rust code is a completely joyless endeavor for me, but it's like a necessary thing that I need to do. It's joyless in the same way that C was joyless. Like I just wrote code and it just, you know, then whatever. I didn't care much about my job. I didn't feel like I was expressing problems in the way that I feel like I can express them now. So you, you brought up, well, what led to Rust was, was libraries and, and not, not finding a library that really meets your expectations. So I'm just curious, what do you look for in any, any uh, package or library that you're going to pull in? Just generally? Yeah. Depth. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. Are we going back to Posty? Well, I mean, no, I mean, really, that's what it is. I, I think I want to bring in libraries that solve real problems for me. And if the library is not solving a real problem for me, I'm not going to bring it in. And, the, and that's like a really obvious, sort of tautologically obvious answer. 
if a library doesn't do something for you, then you shouldn't use it. <laughs> like, no duh. But I am not inclined to bring libraries in that do one or two very small things, which is also kind of where I push back on the whole notion that, oh, for libraries, we should have like very, very small libraries. I agree with that in and as much as we should have very small APIs for those libraries, but those libraries should do important things. Like, you want those libraries to do larger things. So I look for that. I'm not inclined to bring in libraries for a whole lot of things that I think... Uh, just just generally um yeah so depth like how much value is this giving me versus and that's just a feel thing you know like how much value is this giving me versus the cost of just having the library um you know if it's if it's if that value isn't very high then i'm not going to do it um you know in elixir specifically i go and look for things like bottlenecks you know are they using gen servers you can typically look at that and see like if, if the api looks like you're making a gen server call and you're not interacting with the state like that's that's a red flag not a red flag but that's definitely a, a, a cue for me to go look in the library and make sure that there's not gonna be bottlenecks in it how about you anna what do you look for i mean similarly to keith lee right like i think the biggest thing is like any red flags as you're looking at the code to ensure that it's not really going to make your life harder by bringing in this dependency, you know, how well is it being maintained? Although it's, you know, you don't really have control over that, but also depth, like, is it really solving the problem that you're looking for? Um, Cause I've definitely been in situations where you bring something in and then there's a lot more pain and headache trying to work with it than having tried to write the thing on your own. Yeah. I think, I think part of something that I would add to all of that is documentation. Whenever mm-hmm. you say- that's what I think about this is the use cases that I'm looking for. Are they even documented or am I going to be digging through, figure out how to use it? I, I look for tests too. Cause I, I just, I have a hard time trusting yes. software that has none or very, very few. Yes. And then going through the code. And one of the things that uh, Keithley said, about, like looking at whether they're using gen servers and stuff like that, I, I also watch for, supervisors if they are going to use a gen server because I've, I've seen quite a bit of code that'll just start a gen server in the middle of nowhere that's unsupervised and oh, wow. mm-hmm. oh, like it just like links to the to some other some other process somewhere you're yes. just like where is that happening yeah, that's cool yep. <laughs> hot <laughs> um yeah or like process.get process.set yes <laughs> you, you know all kinds you know all about that <laughs> yeah uh the biggest thing with those Process set and process get is being able to debug is a huge pain in the butt uh, whenever whenever you have process globals, especially if you have something in your system that, that you can have more than one copy of, that's when it becomes a pain. So like right now I'm working on a shell. Two people can connect to the system and each get a shell. Now I have two processes, both of them using these process variables and something gets messed up somewhere and sometimes it's really hard to tell which connection is messed up or why or, or anything. It's just, I mean, the same thing that global variables in any other language mm-hmm. often run into problems is where's it being set? Where's it being changed? And which one of these processes is doing that kind of starts to warp my mind. Yeah. I mean, that, it's just so hard to follow how any of that's happening. You have no lineage anymore. So now you're coupled with, time <laughs> like you you know you're you're coupled to this to the to the uh ever marching progress of time and when somebody changed something and how it got changed and whatever you can't recreate the state you know there's no way to like get back into that there's no there's no history anymore 
if you pass that that state along like a, a context or something, it's it's one thing when you have other commands and things that need to just read data out of that context. It, it, it becomes a different beast whenever it needs to update. Mm-hmm. So when you're not using process variables, then you end up in, in a position like a gen server where you you have whatever you actually want your command to send back, plus it has to send back a state that's possibly updated. And that is a different set of, of problems to debug, but at least you have the data sitting around and you can do some tracing of data coming in and out and see where those changes are happening instead of it just being magic. But so I, I think getting rid of it makes the API possibly more complicated or feeling more complicated sometimes, but when it comes to maintenance, it's it's a whole lot easier. Like in the shell, I have a lot of commands. And Why do you think it makes the API more complicated? To change later. Like right now, well, no, using the global variables, right? Um, oh, sure. And, and the response. So before the response is just like, okay, let's do a simple shell. It just returns a string that then gets printed or, or a, a, an IO list or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the only thing it needs to return. And then as as you grow that state, now it needs to return that original thing that it was plus some kind of state object. And maybe it has to maintain that object and update it, or maybe it doesn't. Each each consumer of this now has to worry about that state too, even if they're not even going to change it, if they're just going to pass mm-hmm. it back. So there's just some more things to think about in, in the internals of that function. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm in a position where I am now that there's these process variables that are out there, in order to change this, every single command of that shell, I now need to go pass a state into. So uh, it, you know, I've got a big maintenance issue, not a maintenance, a refactoring problem mm-hmm. to get to a point where I'm passing that in. And at the same time, I have to come up with the API of, do I always return a state or only if I'm going to update it? Do I return okay? Do I return, you know, I, that, that a- mm-hmm. coming up with that API becomes more complicated. Now, once you come up with it, if you've actually thought about it and done a good job and just not thrown stuff out, hopefully long-term, you don't have to change it. And so, so it's simpler, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But not easier. Maybe that's where mm-hmm. I should go. With. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I think that's, I think that's, that seems to make sense. Right. There's a pattern I've used before and I did it again, or I, I kind of ended up uh, using it again on a uh, vapor, which is the configuration um, stuff uh, we've been working on. What we ended up doing, which I think is a pretty decent pattern is uh, we, we, we keep track of, okay, so let me explain how Vapor, what Vapor is. So Vapor is a way to specify configuration sources, whether it's the system, environment variables, you know, etcd, whatever. And it allows you to layer them all together. And it also allows you to set up watches. So if I want to, you know, pull the environment variables every, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute, whatever, then it'll do that automatically for you. Bring that new state in and update your configuration and then, you know, continually layer it all together. But in order to make that um, not a bottleneck, we actually stash all the values in ETS after we've collapsed all the different sources together. So if you think about, you know, the first layer might be environment, the next layer might be etcd. So etcd could overwrite things that are in the environment if you wanted to like live update that or something like that. You know what, it allows you to sort of take an a la carte approach to how you want to do um, configuration. When we squash all those things together, we need to then update an ETS table so that the actual reads in your application are all coming out of ETS and that way they'll be fast. 
and not hitting like a gen server where they can bottleneck. We just use read concurrency for all that stuff. And side note, we might look into persistent term for this because um, that could be interesting depending on, kind of depends on how much you update your values and that kind of stuff. In any case, the pattern that we actually use for that is when we get an update, we pass the update uh, and the existing state in and uh, the existing state is all your layers, all the existing configuration layers. And then as the output, you get a new set of layers and you get a list of commands to execute. And what that allows us to do is create a stateless interface that helps us describe like, when I get an update on this layer, uh, don't do anything. There's no, there's no, there's no actions to take here. But if I get um, these updates in these layers, then I need to do stuff. And so the actions actually come back as a set of tuples where the first thing might be like insert or delete or you know create a new table or whatever. And then the next thing is the value. So uh, this is really nice because you can really easily test this interface. And then in order to use it, all you have to do is pass your data in there. And then what you get back is this list of commands that you need, then need to like actually go execute. And then you have just like a general executor thing that can take a list of commands. And again, that's actually really easy to test because you can just pass in, you can sort of generate a whole bunch of like commands, pass them into the thing and then see what happens, like assert the, uh, the output uh, or your side effects at the end of it, which is a pattern that I actually, I've used before and I really kind of like it. I'm moving a bunch of the stuff in Raft to, to use this pattern more and more. I'm not sure if any of that made sense as a description in over voice. I think it did. I'm just thinking about it because I'm trying to make sure it actually makes sense in my head. I read um, the code, so I cheated a little. <laughs> right. So like you could think about it this way. Like let's say you've got a, um, let's say you've got a, a web API. You've got a API where you're going to update a bunch of users and you're either going to delete them or you're, if they're, let's say like their payment is expired or you're going to charge them if their payment information is up to date. It, one thing you could do is run a query over all of your users. And then what that would output is a list of commands that you need to then go run. Like either like delete that user or update them, you know, send like delete them from like your credit card processor, like your Stripe or whatever, or charge them money or, you know, send them an email or whatever. And you could output all these commands that you then can go run. It's just like a list of things to go do later on. Yeah, I like that pattern. Which ends up being nice. Because it's it makes it makes it easier to build sort of um, those like sort of stateless cores. Uh, Amos and I were talking about this last last week. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you do more things that are stateless? Because I was sort of saying that I think the majority of things that we end up doing in a lot of our sort of applications are not stateless. And so trying to figure out patterns for making them more stateless is always going to be beneficial because it makes it easier to sort of test all that stuff. Totally. And I think I like that pattern a lot. Most of that comes down to figuring out your data models in, in a better way. When, when the data that you pass in, if you can data, it was Andrew said data is greater than, than code. It's like the Lisp thing. Can, data is code. Code is data. That, that's, that is true too. But if you can come up with a, a better data model to pass things around, a lot of times you can eliminate a lot of the state that gets, gets jammed into processes somewhere. Mm hmm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Chris, how's the raft stuff going? Um slowly. I was my goal was to have it done by the end of the year and then I got distracted with other well, things. Well you had a baby. Yeah, and I had a baby. Who turned out to be more work than I ever anticipated. <laughs> raft like, or the baby. Raft. Well both. <laughs> I'll be honest, the baby's been was easier than raft. <laughs> well it's like the third kid at this point it's very intuitive what you know keep them alive like it's all right 
And then, <laughs> but Raft was like, had some like nuance and like rules and stuff like that. And it was hard. Well, you haven't done it before necessarily, right? Where it was the baby. Yeah. yeah. This is old hat at this point. So maybe your third Raft implementation will be easy. Right. Yeah. That's the goal. Then, I'm trying to now come up with the sum of money in my head that you'd have to pay me to write another raft implementation in a different language or like just again, even in Elixir. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I would you should do it in Rust. No. Yeah, your, your favorite. <laughs> no. <laughs> just full stop. No. Wait, and is Vapor a thing you're working on via Bleacher Report or is Vapor a thing you're working on separately? Uh, Vapor's a thing I'm working on separately. Okay but is a thing that we definitely could use at Bleacher Report. Got it. Who else, who else is working on that? Jeff Weiss, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Friend of the show, Jeff Weiss. Uh, mm-hmm. Who else? Uh, ben. Okay. Ben Marks. Ben Marks. Mm-hmm. Also friend of the show. Friend of the show, Ben Marks. Thank you guys. And anyone else who's <laughs> out there in the world who wants to contribute. That's right. Yeah, open source. It's cool that way. I have a, a hard stop here in, in, uh, in a few okay. minutes. I believe they call that a hard out in the business. Hard, a hard out. I have yeah, a hard I have out. A, I have a meeting with uh, one of the developers of the client who's taking over the shell stuff and <clears throat> give him a, a rundown okay. of that, see what questions he has before he goes to bed since he's in Europe. Yeah, get on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. That sounds good. <laughs> you got to bounce. Uh, so speaking of Europe, though. Oh, nice transition. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's where uh, Elixir cards are made. So you know well, what we've got. Well, not anymore. What? What? Well, I mean... They've, they've, didn't they officially say that they're no longer part of the European Union? Oh. <laughs> oh well, yeah. <laughs> sure. Brexit. Oh, man. Oh, sorry. The political thing, not the credit card. Is that a, are we, we're not supposed to talk about politics on this show. I mean, we can try. It, it would be ill-informed if I started talking about politics, so especially European politics. I have no idea. Hmm. <clears throat> but yeah, who wants Elixir cards? Yeah, so last time we picked a hashtag and everybody can can tweet us about it and then we will use an online drawing system and they just have to be following us on Twitter and, and tweet out that hashtag and we'll pick pick the winner out of all of those tweets and let them know. What's the hashtag so, today? Should it be Brexit at this point? No. <laughs> vapor? Hashtag vapor? Sure. I mean, whatever. No, whatever y'all want. I'm good. Hashtag Flea hates Rust. I don't hate hate Rust. It's just Rust is a joyless, (laughs) joyless experience. There's a difference between hating something. That's true. Hate is a very strong word. I should not have used hate. And just being devoid of joy. That's that's true. I don't mind writing C, but I prefer not. (laughs) I don't know. You'll pick. I think I think Vapor is a good one. Okay. Okay. I think you picked it, Anna. So so. Tweet us with hashtag vapor and tweet Elixir cards too whenever you do that. Add Elixir cards and then at Elixir Outlaws and uh, we will we will draw for a winner of the next set of Elixir cards. Sweet. Also, we should we should mention just quickly in passing, if you're enjoying the show, we now have a Patreon. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. We would love your money. <laughs> it would help us with our sound quality. <laughs> yes, it helps with the. It does. It like legitimately helps with the the quality of the audio, and it helps pay for hosting and pay for editing and pay for stickers and just stuff. And and at the ten dollar level, we will send you stickers. Yes. Yes. We will and, send you stickers. 
and our either either myself or our podcast editor will write you a little handwritten note to go along with your stickers. Wow. To say oh, wow. Just ups that's the game. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't want to give us money, that's totally fine. This podcast will be free for you. Yes. That's right. <laughs> but we do want your money. So we're not in this for the money. We're not. None of the money actually goes to us. It just goes to paying for stuff we pay for, for the show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all who, who do listen. Um, supporters not Chris I maybe we should pick a random supporter and thank them on the show today how about supporter number one friend of the show Jeff Weiss Jeff oh Weiss. yes he, Thanks, he, Jeff he, Weiss. he found the patreon before we even announced it to people yeah which was, <laughs> was funny he was looking hard so he was our first supporter so so thank you Jeff for supporting the show we really appreciate it yes thank you all right y'all all right, Amos, you should go so you're not punctual. You need to value people's time. All right, yeah. we've talked about this before. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you, need to, you need to actually value everyone else's time as much as you value your own, okay? I, I do, I do, I do. All right, well, thank you all. Have all right. a wonderful day. You too. Bye. Bye.